of Rare Disease and Medical Challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is, how do we adapt? That's the focus of It Happened to Me. We help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, hosts Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me, I'm not alone, and neither are you. Welcome, Dr. Shaneth Merbs. Dr. Merbs is a professor of ophthalmology and visual science at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Merbs is an oculoplastic surgeon specializing in cosmetic and reconstructive surgery of the eyelids, orbit, and face. Today, our discussion will be in two parts. We will discuss Dr. Merb's surgical practice in Baltimore and her research and heroic efforts to treat patients with an eye condition called trachoma, the most common cause of blindness from infection. Blindness occurs after years of infection. The eyelashes roll in toward the eye and touch the cornea, causing the cornea to go white and blindness occurs. Two million people are at risk and surgery is the only cure. Dr. Merz performs life-altering surgeries and invented a surgical instrument to improve the outcome of the surgery. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Merbs, and I want to disclose that I am a surgical patient and Dr. Merbs is my hero. Thank you, Beth and Kathy, for asking me to join you on the podcast today. I'm very excited. Dr. Merbs, let's start with our discussion today with your surgery, surgical practice. When most of us think of eyelid surgery as cosmetic, do you repair droopy eyelids? So my practice is primarily functional, which is uh, where the problems are medically necessary and not cosmetic. Uh, Drooping upper eyelids are a very common problem as people age and the eyelids, the upper eyelids droop and block vision and repairing those eyelids, lifting them up is one of the most common surgeries that I do. Aging changes can also affect the lower eyelids and some of the surgeries that I do uh, repair lower eyelid malpositions that can injure the eye. Now, your practice also focuses on benign and cancerous tumors of the eyelid. Boy, this sounds serious. How do patients find you, Dr. Merbs? Well, patients are often referred to me by their ophthalmologist who notices a unusual or concerning growth on their eyelid. I also am referred patients by dermatologists who are not comfortable operating very close to the eye. I also work with head and neck cancer surgeons who are doing bigger procedures but need some help with the tissues around the eye. Are these tumors difficult to remove, Dr. Merbs? 
Well, it really depends on exactly where they are and how big they are. So obviously, smaller tumors are easier to remove. Uh, sometimes the tumors are near the tear duct, and those can be more difficult, difficult to remove because there's a lot of uh, small things, parts going on. When a significant portion of the eyelid is involved and has to be removed, then that eyelid has to be rebuilt again um, from other parts because our eyes need eyelids to protect them. My goodness, that sounds complicated, Dr. Merb. So what is the cosmetic result of this? It's remarkably good. Um, you can build a lower eyelid from parts of the upper eyelid and it looks almost normal except for the fact there aren't lashes. That's one of my favorite surgeries because I think it's so amazing. You can build a functional lower eyelid from parts. <laughs> oh, you are remarkable. Oh my goodness, your patients are so lucky. Are you seeing tumors, do you feel, as a result from sun exposure on the eyelid? The most common tumors that we see on the eyelid are basal cell cancers, which are definitely a result of sun exposure, um, as are squamous cell cancers and melanoma. It's interesting that skin cancers of the eyelid are much more common on the lower eyelid because the lower eyelid receives more sun exposure than the upper eyelid, so definitely. Wow. Now, your practice also focuses on tearing problems, and I'm wondering what are the causes of tearing problems? Kathy, that's a great question. I use the analogy when I'm talking to patients who come see me for tearing that the eye is like a bathtub. There's a faucet and a drain, and the faucet's always on, so one of the reasons the bathtub can overflow is if there's a drain problem. So one of the things that I test in tearing patients that come to my office is how well the tear drain is working. Another um, cause of tearing is if the faucet's on too much. So for instance, if you have kind of a marginal drain that in most cases is functioning okay and you don't tear, but you go into a situation where you make extra tears, like the wind is blowing on your eye or it's cold, then that overwhelms your drain that's just sort of okay, and then you tear in those situations. And that's kind of what's going on in patients with dry eye. Their uh, eye is irritated because it's dry, and the eye tries to make up for that, make up for that by making extra tears all at once, which then um, can cause the patient to tear. And then I have to ask, in your practice, do you also treat trauma injuries? Um, I'm thinking about sports injuries where the eye socket is damaged. Yes, definitely. The ophthalmology department at the University of Maryland takes call at shock trauma, which is the famous level one trauma center for the state of Maryland. And we take care of all sorts of trauma, ranging from car accidents to assaults and, as you suggest, sports injuries. So very commonly, if the eye um, gets hit with a ball or a fist, the bones around the eye can break, the eye socket bones can break, and that's one of the surgeries um, that I uh, do is to repair those fractures. Wow, so how much of your time is spent in an operating room? 
probably about half half of my time every week um, is split between seeing patients in clinic and operating. Wow. And what is the most, let's ask, complicated eye surgery in your practice? Well, certainly the most anxiety-provoking, challenging surgery is any kind of surgery in the orbit. Um, because we're operating very close to the nerve that connects the eye to the brain, there's a real risk of causing vision loss. And so um, we uh, take it very, you know, we make sure that the risk of doing the surgery outweigh, I mean, that the benefit of doing the surgery outweighs the risk um, because some of those surgeries can be quite complicated and challenging. Wow, you sound like an extremely important and and uh, heroic, as Beth has called you, surgeon. It's just amazing. So I have to ask, Dr. Merbs, why did you decide to become an eye surgeon? Well, during medical school, I earned a PhD studying the chemical reactions in the eye that are responsible for color vision. And through that research, I was exposed to the beauty of the eye. And then growing up, I was always good at making things and fixing things. And so I realized as an ophthalmologist, I could combine my fix-it mentality and skills with my love of the eye. Beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's really, that's really interesting. That's so interesting. So, Dr. Burbs, now let's discuss your your research um, and treatment of trachoma. And again, I wanted to ask, what drew you to trachoma, this very rare disease? Well, it's a funny story. I was sitting in my office one day and really knew not very much about trachoma at all. And one of the researchers um, that was studying trachoma knocked on my door and said, hey, we're studying the surgery to prevent blindness from this disease and the surgery that's performed is not as successful on the left side as it is on the right side. And all the surgeons are right-handed. So since you're an eyelid surgeon, can you figure out why the surgery is harder to do on the left side? And that's, that was how it started. And the next thing I know, I was going to Tanzania and watching the surgery and that led to me designing an instrument to try to make the surgery more reproducible and safer because in Africa, most of these surgeries are done by uh, surgical technicians, sort of integrated eye care workers, not actual doctors. Can you tell us what is trachoma? Yes, trachoma is the most common infectious cause of blindness, as you mentioned, Beth, in the beginning. It's a chlamydial infection. Um, and it affects the poorest parts of developing countries, primarily women and children, and they get a conjunctivitis over and over and over again until the insides of their eyelids scar and the lashes turn in and rub up and down on their corneas till they go blind. Now I have to ask, what is chlamydia? Chlamydia is a bacteria. Um, it's a sexually transmitted disease in the U.S. It's a different um, form of the bacteria that's affecting the eyes in the developing countries of the world. Um, trachoma is curable in terms of the infection by antibiotics. So that is one approach that the World Health Organization um, adopts is to deliver 
uh, antibiotics in mass distribution to try to reduce the level of infection. But even if we could wave a magic wand and get rid of all of the infection right now, the, there are still several million people, as Beth mentioned, who are at risk of going blind because their eyelashes are currently scratching their eye. And that the surgery that I study is to cut the eyelid and rotate the, ash, the eyelashes out of the eye to prevent that blindness. This condition must be very uncomfortable. Yes, you can imagine how, um, how uncomfortable you get if you get one lash in your eye temporarily. So if you imagine your whole life um, is, is dealing with that, it's, it's, very, it's a very uncomfortable situation. And um, it's in addition to preventing blindness, the surgery obviously does a tremendous amount to help the comfort for these uh, women and children. How long does it take to lose sight from this condition? Good question. It, it depends on the severity of the scarring on the inside of uh, the eyelid. I've seen, um, you know, young, not young, young, but, you know, teenage children, teenage kids who've um, lost vision from this. Um, but certainly it's more prevalent in patients as they get older because they've had cumulative years of trauma to their cornea. Wow. Now, is the surgery difficult? Well, it's difficult in the middle of nowhere in Africa with no electricity and running water and um, no operating rooms. But it's a surgery that's very well um, described and it's taught very um, carefully to these integrated eye care workers who were then sent out into the rural communities to perform the surgery with only a few instruments compared to what we use in the United States. Now, is the surgery always successful? Unfortunately not. Um, in, it's probably, there's probably about a third of patients go on to, to develop the lashes turning in again. And it's probably a combination of a surgery that wasn't um, completely successful combined with repeated infection. So even after the surgery is done, the individuals can get infected again and can cause the problem to recur. Oh, so is it largely a third world um, issue? Is it if a patient is diagnosed with trachoma in the United States, what happens here? Or is it different here than in, in the, in the rest of the world? So trachoma, in, time? trachoma affects the poorest parts of developing countries. So not so much in the cities of developing countries, but in the rural areas where there's lack of water and lack of sanitation. And it's not just Africa. Um, I've done work in South America the indigenous population that lives in the Amazon actually um, has trachoma and is another um, group of people that we're working um, on trying to cure with surgery. In the United States, we have several conditions that can cause the lashes to turn inward um, and cause similar symptoms and problems. Um, but it's not trachoma. We don't have trachoma infections in the United States. 
So it would be the same sort of surgery that you would use for someone whose lashes maybe um, an age-related issue where the eyelid rolls in. You would do the same kind of surgery. A similar surgery. We have we have a few more inst we have a few more instruments and we have some smaller, more delicate sutures. Um, so it's a little bit different. Do you use your clamp? Would you use that clamp in this case? Yeah. Um, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, um, particularly when I'm operating on the lower lid in the United States, because it's um, lashes turning in are more common in the United States than in areas from trachoma. Trachoma primarily affects the upper eyelid. Gotcha. And why did you decide to focus your research in Africa? The country of Ethiopia has the most people at this point who have the trachiasis or the eyelash problem. And so that, that is where we've focused our research um, and where the greatest push is to try to treat the most people at risk. Now, now Dr. Merz, you spoke about some of the issues facing you as a surgeon in Africa. Maybe we could talk a little bit about these obstacles. We've tagged pictures of you operating in, in a pretty rudimentary setting. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about what that's like, the challenges you face operating in Africa as you try to deliver this life-altering surgery. Sure. So again, the people that need the help the most are far away from you know cities. So usually in a typical day, we leave and drive along dirt roads that can be um, quite challenging, sometimes driving one or two hours to get to a health center, which is like a cement building um, in a village where somebody has gone days before to identify people who need the surgery. Um, that morning we set up for, we bring everything that we need and we set up to do the surgery um, and the patients are screened and for the research project, they are consented um, and randomized to the various things that we're studying. And then the surgeries are performed. And oftentimes, because the patients have had to walk to get to where the surgery is being performed, our vehicle drives them back so they don't have to walk several miles home after having their eye surgery. And then we pack everything back up and drive back. <laughs> So you're talking about the roads are uh, difficult to maneuver, the uh, rudimentary surgical suites. Um, I wonder, have you operated in the middle of a war? Well, not in the middle of a war exactly, but I've missed, I've had some close calls. Um, Ethiopia is a very diverse uh, country and we have been close to areas where there was tribal just uh, disagreements that we we had to leave um, to avoid to avoid that. And once a Christian versus Muslim incident broke out right after I had left the area, um, so we've been close, but um, but but uh, but we've all remained safe. A little bit more stress to to these surgeries. Uh... Well, and we're careful. We're careful, and we're careful where we operate. Um, you know, we try to stay away from the areas that um, are most volatile for the safety of everyone. For my team, that's you know there all the time.
So speaking of your team, how many people are in your team? How many surgeons and support staff do you go in with? So one of our studies that operated on over 6,000 eyelids um, had about eight surgeons total, but there were four operating at any one time. And for each surgeon, there was a surgical assistant who helped set up the equipment and helped clean and sterilize the equipment in between surgeries. There was a consent specialist who was able to translate the consent form into whatever language the individuals uh, spoke. There were the people, a couple people who were measuring vision and doing all of the the documentation before the surgery and then the people taking care of the patients afterwards. So basically it was two SUVs full of people each time, each day. And how long do you stay? And how many operations can you do during each trip? So the last time I was there was October of 2021 and I went for two weeks and I was supposed to operate for 10 days and for two of those days, we drove for an hour and a half and got to some place in the road that we couldn't pass and had to turn around and go back. So, um, so I operated for eight days and each of those days I did almost 10 surgeries. So, so operating as fast as we can. Again, there's other people, you know, that are helping identify the patients and bring the patients and take them back. but. We work because we're only there for that particular spot for one day. We try to do as much as we can. When I fly there, I usually go for one to two weeks because it takes a good 14 or 15 hours to get there and then another day to get to the remote area that we're going to be working out of. So I have to ask, who pays for your trip and the flights and all of this work? Well, most of my work has been research oriented where we're trying to improve the outcome of these surgeries. And that research has been funded um, by the NIH and by non-government organizations uh, such as Orbis. Um, we also uh, rely heavily on uh, donations from people, uh, particularly grateful patients um, who are interested in supporting our work and who believe in the work that we're doing. Wow. And do you need more funding for this vital work that you're doing? Of course. Of course. <laughs> I have to ask, how does the TT clamp, which you invented, work? Well, the surgery to correct this problem involves making a cut through the eyelid um, above the eyelashes and all the way through the eyelid. And the clamp looks sort of like a eyelash curler with a plate that goes underneath the eyelid and it protects the um, eye from the surgical blade that's making the incision through the eyelid. And it stabilizes the eyelid and it gives guidelines as to where to make the incision and it holds everything steady and keeps the eyelid from bleeding as the surgeons are placing the sutures. So the idea was to make something that made the procedure safer and more producible and easier for these uh, surgical technicians to perform the surgery in you know, rural conditions. 
Remarkable. Thank you. That's just an amazing invention. And I've got to ask, when are you, when's your next trip to Africa? When are you putting this to good use there? I will be traveling on February 11th um, in just a couple of weeks <laughs> to um, Ethiopia to train uh, surgeons on a new technique for patients who have had a surgery already, but the problem has recurred. And so we have a new surgery that's designed specifically for those patients, and I will be training um, surgeons and how to do that and trainers that will be able to go off and train more people. Dr. Merbs, I want to thank you for being a guest today. It's not often I have the opportunity to interview a hero, someone who's making a real difference in the world. And I know our listeners will want to learn more about your efforts to treat trachoma and they can find that information on our website. Thank you so much for being our guest. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh, a pleasure to learn, to learn. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. That's ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact forum on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. Again, that's ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating review on your podcast app, probably Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenges community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. Steve Holsenbach is our media engineer and co-producer. Myself, Kier Deneen from DNA Today, is our marketing lead and co-producer. Ashlyn Onokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone and neither are you.